0: But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the Righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. This is God's word. Thank you so much for reading the word of the Lord for us this morning. I think most of you know that my calling in being back in Singapore is not just to pastor a church. It is also to give God glory by recognizing the gifting He has placed by His own sovereign will in men and women who are already living and serving here. It is my joy to bring to this pulpit, A man who I believe is prepared of God with unique gifting. He has spoken truth to me. He has been my culture coach. And at times he has even pastored my heart. So it's a joy to welcome you, Caleb. Come and teach God's word to us today.
1: Testing. How do we get this on? Testing. Are we good? Testing. You want me to speak? Oh, okay. All right. Hi, everybody. Hi. Okay, everybody looks as anxious as I am. Uh, And I'm pretty anxious. So, uh, I didn't sleep too well last night, uh, if you can imagine mostly because uh, I was so excited to be here today. Uh, So we're gonna do what uh, people do when they're anxious, just to get us eased in, so everybody looks really anxious. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna go to the next slide, (laughs) and we're gonna have a chat with one another before we uh, get started. Now this is, for those those who uh, are part of the young adults, they know exactly what's coming up next, but the rest of you don't. Now is the time where all of us are going to nudge the person on our left and right, And say, Hi, my name is X, okay, or not X, your name. And then what you're gonna do is we're gonna have a chit chat. Now, you see these four photos that I've put up. And you're gonna look at, answer two questions, which is, What are these four photos and what do they have in common? Now, what we're not gonna do, what we're not gonna do is be unfriendly. So now is the time to nudge the person on your left and right. Say, Hi, I'm so and so, and here are the questions. I'll give you about three minutes. What are these places and what do they have in common? Okay, go for it. Testing, testing, testing. Good? Okay, I think that's enough time. I think that's great. Okay, can I just get uh, some help? So, does anybody want to shout out what is p- number one on the top right? What is number one? MBS. What's on the top right? Sorry. Newton Circus. Thank you, Auntie Regina. Newton Circus. What's at the bottom left? Raffles Hotel. And the bottom right? Chimes. Now. Sh- Okay, now is the million-dollar question. What do these four places have in common? Singapore, crazy rich Asians. Um, for those of us who haven't haven't been uh, watching too many movies, I apologize. I'm so sorry about that. But this is what uh, my entire week, pretty much all my conversations with people have been about. Uh, Hi, hi, how are you? Oh, good to see you. You're doing okay? I'm doing okay. Great, great. Hey, have you seen Crazy Rich Asians? Oh, yeah, I've seen Crazy Rich Asians. Oh, uh, did you see the the Marina Bay sands with the fireworks? That's pretty crazy. Did you see the chimes thing with the water going? I mean, if if you haven't watched it, am I spoiling it? Uh, I am. (laughs) The the main question, though, that in all of these uh, conversations that I've had uh, is, does this movie look like real Singapore? Uh, and, and you can continue that conversation after this, uh, after this service. Uh, but that's the main question that I think pretty much everybody who watches this movie is thinking about. Does this movie depict what Singapore really looks like? Uh, and, and that's actually not too far away from the message of First John. Uh, First John asks a similar question. It asks, what does real Christian life look like? Uh, many of us, perhaps struggle with this because by the time you're done with chapter one as we are right now in god's word it should cause us some anxiety in in our sermon series we've been looking at chapter one and this is more or less a summary of chapter one Uh, some bible teachers break up uh, the book of first john into a series of tests uh, tests that are diagnostics to help us think about whether or not we look like real christians Uh, chapter one talks about the fellowship test that if god is light and in Him is no darkness at all, then do we have fellowship with Him? And what does that look like in real life? And then the second part of chapter 1, there's a truth test where how we respond to the truth that we are sinners, that also reveals whether or not we know Him. And those are stressful questions. And By the time we are done with chapter 1, I don't know about you, last week after the sermon, I felt very heavy in my heart. I felt as if, well, I know I'm a Christian, but I really struggle with these things. I wonder whether this morning, as you're sitting out there right now, thinking about this, your life reflects some of that true Christian life that 1 John speaks about. And that's why when John turns the corner into chapter 2, he suddenly brings up a different topic. He says, now, look at it. Look at what God has done for those of us who struggle with our sin. He uses this word, an advocate. And that's what we're gonna be talking about today. We're gonna look at our text this morning in chapter two, verses one to six, under three headers. The first header is, who are the people who need an advocate? Second, the advocate that God provides. And third, the result of knowing Him. So if you're taking notes, those are the three headers. But because I'm still anxious after the conversation, uh, will you join me in prayer? Let's pray together. Father, our prayer this morning is that we would be good listeners and doers of Your Word. We pray that You would help us this morning with humble hearts to come before You. God, we pray that we would all just fade away, including this man, that all we would see is the Lord Jesus. We ask that You would lift up Christ in our midst, nourish us by His Word, help us to know Him. Lord, we love you, and we ask that you would help us to delight in your love today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The people who need an advocate. John chapter 2, verse 1 says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, and there we chop the sentence in half. And John uses a very interesting word my little children. This is a very unique Johannine, a very unique John word. It happens five times in this book. Nobody else uses this phrase, it's just John. And it's a pastor word. It's a word that a pastor uses to speak to his church. He says, my little children. At this juncture, John is an elderly man who has been a pastor of this church for many years. He's seen them grow. He's baptized the church. They're not strangers to him. And that describes his relationship with them uh, in the church. Uh, when, I, when I was studying overseas, the thing that uh, always made me feel that I was coming home was when I came home and I went to the nearby hawker center uh, near my house and I went to eat my, uh, my usual favorite, which is white, uh, and Tai And if you've been away from home, the way that you know that you're home for someone of my age is when you go to the hawker center and you stand there and the lady says, "Boya," And that's how you know you're home. It uh, doesn't matter what you're wearing, it doesn't matter what you look like, how old you may but you stand there and the auntie says, Boya, and you're, yes, I'm home. Uh, that's not too far away from the way and the kind of relationship that John is talking about, but just so much more intense that John says, my little children. And that's exactly why John shares for those whom he loves so much, his little children, his greatest concern and his greatest hope for them. And do you see what it is? It's sin. John is most concerned in his old age that his church, that his children will not sin. This is quite different from the way many of us think about the kinds of concerns and ambitions that we have for maybe our children or our friends or even our loved ones. In John, in, the, in, in two letters later, third John verse 4 which has no chapters. Third John, he says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. This is John's concern for his people. But it's not unique to John. This is the, the one of the big themes that runs throughout the Bible, that God, in his word, is so concerned about how his people sin. All the way in Genesis chapter 4, verse 7, God tells Cain, do you remember this? When Cain is tempted to, to, to feel rage and murder in his heart, what does God say to him? He says to Cain, if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you. And that word is translated in many different ways. Some people say it's have. Some people say it's overcome. Some people, it's, uh, it's against you. But it's the idea that sin as an animal is crouching at your door of your heart, calling you to do something that God does not want you to do. But you must rule over it. Jesus, in Matthew 5, makes it even more serious when He talks about sin. He says that it's so serious that if your hand or your eye are the cause of sin in your life, you need to do something about your eye and your hand. Uh, These are serious, drastic words. Last week, uh, Pastor Eugene preached from here and he told us that sin is not just doing bad things, it's not just behaviour, it's the condition of our hearts. It's our motives. It's the way that we think about ourselves and about God. Christian theologians have always spent much time talking about sin. Augustine, Martin Luther, they came up with a a theological term, uh, some Latin, right? And And they came up with this term to describe the sinful man. The man who is curved in on himself. The man who is in his sinful state, curved in on himself. That man cannot see God. That man cannot see other people. All he sees is himself. Can, can you hear why John is so concerned that his children do not sin? John Piper says it perhaps the best. What is sin? Sin is the glory of God, not honoured. The holiness of God, not reverenced. The greatness of God, not admired. The power of God, not praised the truth of God, not sought, the wisdom of God, not esteemed, the beauty of God, not treasured, the goodness of God, not savored, the faithfulness of God, not trusted, the promises of God, not believed, the commandments of God, not obeyed, the justice of God, not respected, the wrath of God, not feared, the grace of God, not cherished, the presence of God, not prized, the person of God, not loved. I am a sinner and I struggle with sin. Not just big and obvious, uh, horrible sins that many of you already know about. Small sins, sins that get in the way of my everyday life. Some of you will know that uh, my fiancé Rachel and I were looking for a house uh, right now. And house hunting is the worst thing in all the world. I I, I genuinely feel that way right now, especially as the conversation uh, in the national media is about 99 years. and, and It's just the worst thing because everybody tells you a thousand things. And the worst part of house-hunting is what it brings out in your own heart. This week and the last two weeks, I have found myself more calculative, and more selfish, and more greedy than I have ever known myself to be. That's because when I look at location, I think about space. When I look at space, I think about price. When I think about price, I think about neighbors. And when I think about neighbors, I think about the rising value of my asset. And you know something? The way that I know I've gone about my house hunting in a sinful way is that I didn't pray at all. I didn't think about God at all. Not until Rachel reminded me that we should pray. Friends, it feels like we're going a long time on this one verse. But what's the way that you live your life? And I'm not asking you to compare it to me. I'm just asking, Where is God in your regular decision-making? Where is He? Jerry Bridges is one of my uh, father's favorite authors, and he's written this book, wonderful book called Respectable Sins. And he's put together a list of amazing sins. Can can you see on that list there? Uh, And you should read up on this book, take a look for yourself so you can see. Anxiety and frustration. Are we trusting God when we are anxious? Unthankfulness, do we consider our gifts and blessings from God, His graces to us? Judgmentalism, how we look at other people, and whether or not we see them the way God sees them. And the very last one on that list, worldliness. John picks up that theme too here in 1 John. Little children, if anyone sins, John assumes that we are going to sin. Friends, are we willing to look at our sin honestly and truthfully? John has said in chapter 1 that if we say that we have no sin, we lie and the truth is not in us. God is personally offended by our sin and it ought to change the way we think about ourselves and the way we think about one another. A really great example of how to do that is Susanna Wesley, who is a mother of John and Charles Wesley, the famous Methodist preachers, and she writes to her boys these powerful words of warning that show us how seriously we ought to take sin. This mother writes and she says to her sons, whatever weakens your reason, impairs your conscience, the tenderness of your conscience, obscures your sense of God, takes off your relish for spiritual things, whatever increases the authority of the body over the mind, that thing is sin to you, however innocent it may seem in itself. Friends, is this the way that we think about sin? Well, John gives us a wonderful example and the kinds of relationships we ought to have ought to be fashioned that way. It would be a wonderful thing if in this church we turned to one another and said, brother and sister in Christ, I write these things to you that you may not sin. I write this this text message to you that we may not sin. Brother, shall we have lunch or coffee and tea so that we may not sin? So that we may not sin. Little children, is this our heart? So what do we do if we have sinned? God provides an advocate. Chapter 2, verse 1 ends with, but if anyone does sin, and then the next verse says, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Verse 2 tells us about the advocate that God provides. Jesus Christ, the righteous, helps us when we sin. How how does this Jesus perform this role? John says he is our advocate before the Father. Advocate is not a word that that we use commonly. It's an old word. Uh, It's a word that talks about one who comes alongside to call out for us. One who comes alongside to call out for us or speak for us. The Jewish philosopher Philo, writing about the same time as John, he uses this word advocate in a very interesting way. He, when he's talking about the Jews of Alexandria who are being oppressed by the Roman emperor, he says that what the Jews really need against, uh, for their help is they need a better and a more powerful advocate. That's the way the word is used. You need someone to speak for you, someone who has some pull, someone who has the, the kind of a uh, capital to, in order to make a decision-maker favorable to you. Jesus is our advocate. We shouldn't miss out that John tells us his name explicitly. Jesus Christ is his name. And we shouldn't miss out on the fact that this John and Jesus relationship is a real human historical relationship. John knew Jesus. He was the same Jesus who called him out of the boat to leave his father and nets in the boat. And the same Jesus who asked John to care for his mother. And what's even more amazing is that John says that Jesus is righteous. Now, we we accept all of this uh, in in church. We accept it and we know, okay, fine, Jesus is righteous, Jesus is God. Okay, fine, we get it. But do you remember, do you remember that for Jews, for thousands of years, the Jews have been conditioned to believe that no one can be righteous. That's one of the core beliefs about being a Jew. No one is righteous before God. So, Psalm 14 is is a verse that John would have known. And Psalm 14 says, The fool says in his heart, There is no God. They, They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. And the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. None does good, not even one. John would have known this. And yet here he says, Jesus Christ is righteous. Why is that? It's actually a historical problem. If you're a non-Christian here today, it's actually a historical problem that John would call Jesus righteous because that's not in keeping with Jewish religion. Maybe John was close enough to the cross when he heard the Roman centurion say in Luke 23, 47, when Jesus gave up his life, surely this was a righteous man. Perhaps he was even closer when he heard Jesus say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. The words of an advocate. Forgive them for they know not what they do. It's one thing that a righteous man speaks up for sinners, but it's another thing to know that the judge will certainly listen to uh, to him. Many righteous men have been ignored, but John tells us that Jesus is much more than an advocate who is righteous. Jesus is propitiation. Now, I just want to hold the slide here, Sam, if you could just hold it, and I'm just going to ask if you could turn again to the person next to you and and just have a quick chat. Ask them, have you ever heard of this word propitiation? And then right after you do that, I'm just going to ask, I'm going to do a poll to see how many of us I mean, know the meaning of, of this word. Could you just nudge the person who is kind of dozing off? Just nudge him and say, hey, do you know what this word is? And discuss the meaning. Just one minute. Just, what does this word mean? Go for it. Right. Uh, okay. Just do me a favor. For every pair, who knows exactly what the word propitiation means? Put your hand. Put your hand up. You know exactly what it means. Put it up. You know exactly what it means. Hands up, everybody. Hands up. For every pair. Okay. All right. I see. I see people with theological degrees. No. <laughs> people who teach theology. No. It's. It is there. Thank you, Auntie Georgina. Again. Thank you. Uh, yes. Aunty could you just… what What is propitiation? <laughs> Thank you, ma'am. Uh, propitiation is a, an extremely technical word. It's an extremely technical word. If you are holding an NIV Bible, there's a good chance that you won't have propitiation in there because NIV translates it what? Anybody with an NIV Bible? Sac- Atonement sacrifice? or if the older one, sacrifice of atonement. Uh, if you have a Bible that says propitiation, that's great. Because propitiation is not exactly the same as sacrifice of atonement. Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. He's also our atonement, that's true. But this is not what that means here. Uh, you see, when, someone at- when you atone for something, and some of you are going to start rolling your eyes right now. When you atone for something, you are atoning for Sin. The thing that you have done is being addressed. But that's not what propitiation means. Propitiation is when you act on the person who is offended. The person who sinned against. If Jesus is my atonement, my sins are paid for. Praise God. But if Jesus is my propitiation, then God sees me differently. This is the big difference maker. That if Jesus is my propitiation and I, a sinner, and I have genuinely trusted in Him, God sees me differently. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what I actually feel about myself. Because God's wrath has been removed. Propitiation means to turn aside wrath and change God's wrath. The way He sees me into favor. It's a word that that goes all the way back to Exodus and Leviticus and the work of God there, the work of priests there, when they turn aside wrath so that God is no longer angry for our sins, but He sees us favorably. If Jesus is our propitiation, we have a different relationship with Him because He's not angry for our sins anymore. So you see, if this propitiation is my advocate, He hears him because he sees me differently because of what he's done. If we don't understand propitiation, we'll continue to feel that everything that is bad in our life is because God is angry at at us. One Bible teacher says that if we don't understand propitiation, every trial becomes a double trial. You suffer the pains of of your own suffering and you wonder if God is secretly angry at my sins and if He's going to whack me when I'm not looking. There was a day when I felt this very acutely myself. I went for a run, which is rare, and it was going to rain. uh, And it it was a terrible, terrible sky. Uh, And I I got really scared. And I don't know why, for, for some strange reason, as I was running and the sky went from bright to dark, I got so scared and I started thinking about all my sins. I started thinking, is it because God hates me? Is it because of that thing that I did that I shouldn't have done? Or worse, is it the thing that I was supposed to do that I didn't do? Is it because my heart was not right with God? Did He send a storm after me? And then the doctrine of propitiation really helped me there, helped me to really understand and remember, you know what, God is not angry at me for my sins. If I've trusted in Jesus Christ and His blood covers my sins, and He's my propitiation, He's not angry. So I wrote this for myself. God's voice rang out in crashing thunder. He's declaring to rip the earth asunder. My precious child, did you not know? Did you not see? Were you not told? This storm for you is not my wrath. For other reasons, it's on your path. Look at Calvary and my true son, at Christ the righteous, his work there done. He takes the burden of your sin. Your every debt is charged to him. And I have given you a sign, the cross, propitiation's design." So when you face life's bitter trials, know that though you bear a while, a light momentary passing grief in storms, you can find relief. Because Jesus bore God's wrath in full, this angry storm is not for you. Not for me, not for me. Hallelujah, God's wrath is not for me. And John tells us that it's not just for us, it's for the whole world. Verse two, sometimes people look at that phrase and they say, oh, not for us, also for the, for the whole world. And they think of this thing called universalism or the idea that, if I, uh, that because Jesus died on the cross, we are all going, uh, without repentance, we are all going to be saved, we're all going to heaven. Uh, but that's not what this verse means. Because in chapter one, we've already been told that repentance, acknowledgement of sin, that is a must. That's something that we have to do. This verse doesn't mean that. Well, what is this verse then? This verse that says it's not for us it's not, but for, and for the whole world, it's John telling his readers, look how wide the gospel goes. Look how broad his atonement goes. Friends, that's why we do missions. That's why we send the gospel out. That's why his word must not stay within the borders of these walls. It must go out because the propitiation of Jesus is not for us only. It is for the whole world. That's what the Advocate came to do. Let's talk about application of this. What do we do? Uh, in, in Pilgrim's Progress, which is a, one of my favorite books, there's a character called Christian, and he bears a huge burden on his back. Uh, the burden weighs him down, it presses on him, it crushes him, and he meets a man called Evangelist. Uh, this man's called Christian, he meets a man called Evangelist, and he says, go this way for deliverance, and he can't see it. And on his journey, he falls into this swamp, this boggy mire called the Slough of Despond. Slough is like a fancy word for swamp. Uh, Despond is a fancy word for despair. The swamp of despair. Uh, And he feels that because of his sin, he's he's falling in and he can't get out. And the burden on his back pulls him down and down and down. And And John Bunyan writes, the miry slough is a place that cannot be mended. It is the descent where the scum and filth that attends conviction for sin, continually runs. That's why it's called the slough of despond. For still, as the sinner is awakened about his lost condition, there arises in his soul many fears and doubts and discouraging apprehensions, which all come together, settle in this place, and this is the reason of the badness of the ground. And Christian falls in there and he can't get out. I wonder whether there's anybody here who thinks that even though they're a Christian, they've struggled with their sin for so long, they're stuck in a swamp and they can't get out. I wonder if there are some things in your life right now, honestly and truly, which you know are offensive to God. He grieves his heart and he grieves you, but you can't get rid of it. Maybe it's a bad temper. Maybe it's a relationship that is sour, that you just can't fix because there's just too much hurt. Maybe it's lust. Lust that grips you every time you close the door. Friends, sin has a grip on us and we need help. And how does Christian get out of the slough of this spawn? How does he break that hard heart? Strong hands come in and a character called help comes to pull him out. Friends, our help is Jesus Christ, and that's what we need this morning. We need Him. And and what do we do after we know Him? What do we do after His hands take a hold of us? What do we do? The results of knowing Him? By this we have come to know Him. And, and, And it's interesting, isn't it, that when John turns the corner, he doesn't tell us Jesus has come to help, now be a good person. That's not what he says. He talks about knowing Jesus. After he's been helped, he says, now know Jesus. And how do you know Him? Keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Verse 4 restates the idea in verse 3. And this test, this obedience test is a hugely important point to John. John says that because of true knowledge of Jesus, our true love for Him melts our hearts to say yes to Him. It's not obedience out of grudge or or, or just a grudging kind of obedience or obedience out of compulsion. It's It's an obedience that comes from knowing Him. William Cooper wrote a hymn and he says it the best. He says, to see the law by Christ fulfilled, to hear His pardoning voice changes a slave into a child, and duty into choice. Then all my servile works were done, a righteousness to raise. Now freely chosen in the Son, I freely choose His ways. Friends, do you know Jesus? If, if you know Him, does your life sound like Him? Verses 5-6 to six develop the idea of obedience even further, and it says that if you know Him and you keep His word, God's love is perfected in you. Knowing that we have this kind of an advocate to help us and intercede for us will change us. It will change us qualitatively. This, this verse doesn't possibly, it cannot possibly mean that God's love can be improved on. Psalm 18 verse 30 tells us that God is already perfect. His word is already true. He cannot be improved on. And Matthew chapter 5 tells us again that our Heavenly Father is perfect. So this, this verse that says obedience perfecting, perfects the love of God cannot possibly mean that we make it better. Instead, what it means is that the love of God is finished. It is accomplished. Uh, it accomplishes what it was supposed to accomplish in us. And the logic is when you obey God's, Jesus' commandments, you become what the love of God was meant for. When you say no to yourself and yes to Him, when you submit your will to God's, your heart's, your heart shows the results of the, the love of God in Christ. This is love-driven obedience, and it exalts God's love. It's like fruit that is grown out of seeds of love. And those, and that kind of obedience is very different from a grudging obedience. Verse 6 tells us that, God, that the love of Jesus changes us so that we will abide in Him and we ought to walk in the same way in which He walked. Knowing that we have an advocate like this, and we've been helped by Him, we we'll want to know Him, and knowing Him will change us to want to obey Him. How do we do this, and how do we do this practically? Some Two suggestions as we prepare to close. Number one, you can learn to walk like Jesus, who is an advocate. And that means being an advocate for others. If you believe that Jesus Christ has stood for you before the Father, and we are called to walk like Him, be an advocate for others. In Ezekiel chapter 22, in the Old Testament, God talks about how He looks for an advocate for Israel. He says, I sought for a man among them who should build up the wall and stand in the breach before me in the land, that I should not destroy it, but I found none. Second uh, Corinthians 5 is a New Testament version of this and tells us what it looks like for us in the New Testament. And in, in this verse, he says that as Jesus is the great recon, uh, reconciler himself, we, if we walk like him, we are to be ambassadors for him, since we have been given that message of reconciliation. Uh, in, in Philemon, Paul does exactly that for Onesimus, if you, if you read that, that book before. And he writes to this uh, wealthy, uh, wealthy Christian, Philemon, and for this. Uh, this runaway slave, Onesimus, and he says, if you consider me your partner, receive Onesimus as you would receive me. If Onesimus has wronged you, or owes you anything, charge it to my account. This is what being an advocate looks like. Uh, and, and that's what Jesus does for us, we, and we too can do it for other people. Friends, I, I wonder if Jesus' love for you has moved you to the point where you take action for Him. As He stands before the Father to plead for us, how can we stand here and just be as we were before we knew Him. That ought not to be so. We can be an advocate for others. Uh, Second suggestion, uh, if you know that Jesus is your propitiation and that He has turned aside the wrath of God, walk remembering that. As Jesus died on the cross and the wrath of God was satisfied and He genuinely remembers our sin no more, why would you remember your own sin the way that you do as a burden. As far as East is from the West, so far has He taken our sins from us. Can I speak to the church as a member of the church? I've been here for a long time, and many of us genuinely don't believe that God wants to help us. We genuinely struggle to believe that God is present in our midst helping us. We came to Christ, we got baptized, we became Christians and then the struggles of life took over. The reality of sin, both ours and others, start to press down on us and year on year on year on year on year, we struggle with the same sin. And we ask, where is the power of the gospel? Friends, if we lose sight of His propitiating work, and the genuine belief that God sees our sin no more, then let it go. You'll have the power to forgive others. You'll have the power to forgive those who are not even in our midst. If Jesus has propitiated the Father's wrath, why do we keep remembering it like that? Friends, as we approach the Lord's table in a few moments, Will you open your heart and allow the love of Jesus, his propitiating work, to move you as he stands for us right now, saying, have you, seen, have you seen my church, Grace Baptist Church? Father, have you seen this church? It's full of sin. But Father, you charged their sin to me on the cross and it will be unjust for you to charge them again. Father, your Spirit come on this church. Change us from the inside out that we might be His people. In closing, I just want to help us prepare for the Lord's Supper by reading from the Heidelberg Catechism. Will you just bow your heads for a moment and hear these words as we prepare to receive the Lord's Supper, that great sign of His propitiating work. How does the Holy Supper, how does the Lord's Supper remind and assure you that you share in Christ's sacrifice in the cross and in all His benefits? Answer, in this way, Christ has commanded us to eat this bread and drink this cup in remembrance of Him. With this command come these promises. First, as surely as I see with my eyes the bread of the Lord broken for me and the cup shared with me, so surely his body was offered and broken for me and his blood poured out for me on the cross. Second, as as surely as I receive from the hand of the one who serves and taste with my mouth the bread and cup of the Lord, given me as sure signs of Christ's body and blood, so surely he nourishes and refreshes my soul for eternal life with his crucified body and poured out blood. Heavenly Father, as we prepare now to take the Lord's Supper, help us to see that you have sent us help, an advocate who stands for us and by his own propitiating work pleads for us, that God, you are not wrathful against us. And so change us to walk as you walk, Lord Jesus. Make us the kind of people who rise and respond and remember the body and the blood. We pray this through Christ. Amen.
0: As we prepare to come to the Lord's table this morning, Scripture invites us to examine our hearts as we come to this table. There is no religious magic that will occur when we take this wafer and eat it. We won't receive Christ when we take this drink and drink it. But we are remembering that extraordinary event in history when the righteous Lamb of God shifted the wrath of a holy God from those who deserved it to the one who did not. We remember that day when he willingly bore the wrath of a righteous God so that we may be declared righteous without wrath. That means as we come We don't come sinless. We come repenting. So in this moment, before we receive the elements of the Lord's table, is there anything in your own heart that you would desire to share with the Almighty King of creation? Is there anything you just need to lay down, leave here, and not return for? There are many who are blame shifters, but would you leave here committed to not just being the result of a holy advocate, but being an ambassador of his advocacy, to representing his grace. Let's bow for just a few more moments. As we prepare to receive the elements of the Lord's table, I'd like to invite Pastor Eugene to pray pray a prayer of thanksgiving for the bread. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we thank You for the amazing gift of Your Son. Oh Lord, we thank You for how You have uh, delivered Him up for us. You did not spare Him, but in Your love, You broke his body so that we might be saved. Father, we thank you for how you have turned aside your wrath from us, not because we are deserving, but because Christ has died in our place. So Father, as we come, we pray that you would fill our hearts with peace, fill our hearts with joy and gratitude as we come around this table. We pray that we would glorify you because of your amazing gift to us in your Son. We pray this in his name. Amen. Thank you. Scripture tells us that on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took bread, and after he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body given for you. Do this whenever you take it in remembrance of me. Now, invite Pastor Oliver to pray a prayer of thanksgiving for the
1: cup. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this cup, this cup which represents Jesus' blood shed for us, his blood which covered over our sins and brought us forgiveness. Father, we thank you that through Christ's blood, by his blood, you now see us as favorable before you. Lord, we thank you that uh, Christ has initiated a new covenant with us that we are now able to enter this new relationship with you, Father God, based on trusting in Jesus Christ and what He has done, and not based on our own effort. So Lord, as we drink of this cup, Lord, we ask that He help us remember all these, and to take this cup with joy and gratitude. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.